Today's episode is the first part of a two-part conversation where Chris and I speak with Catherine Zakoyan and we talk about working with Dabrowski's theory and practice, both studying the theory and working with it in a clinical practice. We talk about emotional tension and the shadow, not only how this applies to an individual, but also in groups, including families and groups studying the theory. Catherine shares some of her practice in working with gifted kids and their families, so whether you're working with clients yourself, starting to study the theory, working with your own therapist, or just working on yourself, you'll find something worthwhile in these episodes. Hey listeners and welcome back to Positive Disintegration. I'm your host Emma Nicholson and with me is co-host Dr Chris Wells. Hi Chris. Hi Emma. Nice to see you again. You too. What are we talking about today? Today I think that we're going to have an amazing conversation about using the theory in clinical practice. So this is going to be of interest to a lot of people who are both in practice and maybe attending therapy or counselling themselves. Definitely, yes. Cool. Let's jump straight into it. Our guest today is Catherine Zakoyan. Catherine's a counsellor in Boulder, Colorado, and for the past 22 years, she's specialised in counselling gifted, 2E, and profoundly gifted children, teens, adults, families, and organisations. Her educational consulting work provides guidance to schools serving gifted and 2E populations, and she's the author of Raising Gifted Children, practical guide for parents facing big emotions and big potential. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine. Thanks, Emma. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I wish that I had taken time before now today to articulate concisely how we know each other, but I'm going to do the best I can. I mean, I guess initially we met at the Congress in Calgary in 2016. At least that's the first time I saw you. I'm sure I remember, like, I'm sure that we sat together at a table at least once because we had Frank and Nancy and Linda in common, you know, like they were the only people I knew at that point. And so I was kind of sticking around them. And I was also, of course, trying yeah. to, you know, meet new people. But then we really got to know each other in the Dabrowski study group, which yes. started in September 2016 which is so hard to believe, but it's been such a pleasure to get to know you that way. I mean, it's hard for our listeners to know what we're talking about, but for like three years, more than that, we met monthly, almost every month at Betty Maxwell's apartment in Denver. And then yes. because of COVID, we've had to shift to meeting on Zoom, which was a blessing and a curse because it was so wonderful to go and hang out at Betty's place and be in person once a month. But by doing it via Zoom, we've been able to have people from out of state and even out of the country join us. So it's been really special. Agreed. I know, Chris, I, I'm so glad to know you in this world. And I sometimes I feel like in the Dabrowski study group, I look up whether we're in person or on Zoom and we're both kind of like sometimes in the same place, it feels like, or sort of backing up one another's thinking. And it's just been so fun to, to get to know you in that way. And it's, you've also well, just helped me as a scholar. You've given me so much um, help and guidance. And I really appreciate that. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I, yeah, I totally feel aligned with all of that. It's been so special. And I agree that we're often on the same page about things, which is cool. 
I don't know. I mean, it's been such a journey. Like when I think about when we were first meeting in those first couple of years and I would feel this like intense urgency because I just was like, what are we going to do? Like there are problems, you know, they're like this field is trying to drive the theory out and come on people like wake up. I remember that you were like on fire and, and then, you know, meanwhile, I was kind of over in my part of the room, um, you know, just trying to get my arms around just the basics of the theory, which I have to say I'm still working on, but I, I can remember those days and, you know, sitting with people who've been doing this work with the theory for so many more years. Um, it was really wonderful to be included in that fold. I, I thought your spirit was fantastic. I, I was glad you were there. Well, thank you. I mean, there <laughs> were definitely moments where I was like, am I annoying you people? Sorry. Like, I just, I mean, there were definitely moments where I'm like, yeah, we're not on the same page. Yeah, but, but, but where you took that impulse, I mean, look right from that point in, your hi in the history of your work with Dabrowski to where you are now. I mean, I think that uh, maybe even we could say tension, right? Like, just move the needle. I mean, you've got the Dabrowski Center, you're working in different circles and in different ways and with different individuals and just kind of holding the flame and the torch, uh, as are you, Emma. And it's just, it's just really cool to see. Well, thanks yeah. for being a part of it. It's been such a pleasure. I have never asked you, it'll be interesting to hear your answer to how you first learned about the theory, because, <laughs> you know, when we met, I had only discovered it like a couple years before. And by the time we met, I was only like a year into really digging in and, and committing to it. But how did you first learn about the theory? So let's see, I'm embarrassed to say that um, I can't pinpoint when I first heard of the theory. And I, I, which is kind of unusual for me, but I really can't. Uh, I've, I've got a couple of places where I think it happened. One was in 2005, I went to a like open house event at the Rocky Mountain School for the Gifted and Creative that was a school Barb Mitchell Hutton founded here in Boulder. And um, I think Susan, da it was Susan Daniels and she was speaking. And I feel like she introduced the overexcitabilities to the room in her presentation. But then I was thinking it might have been Patty Gatto Walden because I went to her when I was a young clinician, 2001, to ask her to help me understand um, children's spiritual experiences because I was, I had been involved in a community crisis as an intern. Our regional mental health center was assisting with the aftermath, um, in, and um, as a result, I ended up ended up becoming a grief specialist with children at that time and sort of simultaneously I opened my private practice maybe you know after my internship and a lot of gifted kids were a lot of gifted families were coming to me uh, even though I wasn't advertising that as a specialty so Patty may have been the one that introduced me to Michael's work and also theory but I'm not positive I wish I could tell you I feel I feel a little sad about it actually it's a lost piece of my history with the theory but it's understandable, to be honest. I mean, I don't think we can't always know like the exact moment. And we just had this. I think Tracy Winter also, when we had her on, she was like, I can't pinpoint the exact moment. <laughs> and that's okay. I, yeah, I can tell you, though, like uh, a, an important moment in my work, my understanding of the theory and my attempt to understand the theory happened when I went to the Congress in 2014 
and it had been in Denver, I think, in 2012, but I wasn't able to go to that. But I went to the, it was in Canmore in Alberta in 2014, and I went to the opening talk, and um, I remember Bill Tillier saying something like, if you want to understand this theory, you have to be an archaeologist, and you have to read the source documents. And these are some of my words, not his, but... Um, and that's how you understand the theory, not through a side door like the overexcitabilities. And again, that's sort of my my remembrance and my my words. But um, that had an impression, made an impression on me. And I came back to Colorado and I thought to myself, I'm only going to do that for a while. I'm not going to be reading the blogs or some of other people's interpretation of the theory until I've read some of it more myself. And that was a huge moment for me. And then, of course, you know, Glenda Silverman and like her crew at the Gifted Development Center, you know, started to help me just have access to some of the materials that were very helpful. So that to me feels like more of my initiation into the theory than the earlier uh, conversations, although I think to answer your question, that's when I first started. That's so funny because I do feel like that was a bit of our tension maybe too in those early days of the study group because you were very, yeah, I mean, that was your point of view, like talking about Dabrowski. And I don't necessarily want to talk about Michael's work, you know, because for me, I was like at this point where I was just getting to know Michael in 2016. And so I was very keen to talk with the group about like his work but for the group, they were ready to dive back into the original work along with you. And so yeah. I can appreciate now how important that was for them. It was kind of like going back to how it all started in some in some ways, I think. Yes. And 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 uh, I remember at the time I had like a, a parent group to study Dabrowski and the theory and I had an old copy I had got online and I would read to them, <laughs> I would read to the parents and then we'd talk and I just made a stay with the text and um, it worked out. And at the same time, now I think it's so funny because now when I go to that study group, I still know I have a lot to learn, but I often, I feel like I'm bringing in other stuff that's important to me that I think fits. Like I'm always bringing in the shadow, like what about the shadow? Tell us about your work as a clinician, you're a counselor, and how the theory has informed your practice. And I realize that that is like a huge question to try and answer. So feel free to attack it from any way you'd like. Sure. Um, thanks. So, you know, in, grad in graduate school, part of the process is hopefully understanding and applying theoretical approaches. Um, and becoming really clear about who you are and who you're not as a clinician. And so I resonated quite a bit with humanism and particularly Carl Rogers, where, you know, it's a lot of reflective conversation. The client has their own kind of answers or medicine within that comes forward. Um, and then also Virginia Satir's work that has a lot to do with sort of the sort of the family dynamics. And then I loved Harry Stack Sullivan's work, even though he wasn't necessarily a big part of my training. I just love the idea of the environment sort of shaping um, personality. And and I, as I was thinking about it today, I was like, you know, that kind of in some ways represents a bit of, I think, Dabrowski's like three factors in some ways. And so when I started to learn about Dabrowski, I've just felt some nice resonance um, there. 
because there was an honoring of the environment, there was an honoring, honoring of the sort of biological components, which, you know, we know now also creates like genetically some of the personality components and then sort of this thrust or this inner knowing like third factor or the part of us that keeps moving. And then in addition to that, I did some intensive training with Violet Oaklander, who's the, the theorist behind Gestalt play therapy, uh, which is really beautiful model. It's not a traditional model where, you know, you're sitting in front of a dollhouse, let's say, and there's a mom doll and a dad doll and, you know, a child doll. It's not really that. It's more using symbolic means to give children opportunities to explore and express who they are, who they're not, what's important to them, what's not important to them, what they wish for for themselves in their life. And it's a really great model for gifted, uh, the gifted population because, and choice exceptional population, because it's really clean. The child is coming up with their own symbolic meaning, but I'm giving them opportunities to sort out the complexity of their inner world with, through symbols that we're working with. So that might be like animal imagery for some children. For others, it might be working with something like a tarot deck, where there's a symbol that men, that, that uh, represent these different parts of ourselves. And there's tension in the parts. There's parts that we love about ourselves and parts that we, we love less. And having those parts dialogue and resource one, one another and integrate with one another, it's a very very clean, beautiful model that works. And there's resonance with Dabrowski there, I feel like too. There's like this constant tension that you're working with in the um, Gestalt model that to me feels like that inner tension as well as the inner to the outer world tension that Dabrowski, you know, honors. Well, I've woven in a couple more things. I'm really interested in Carl Jung's work. I'm very, very fascinated with the shadow yeah, so I my one my one sort of place in the theory where I'm not sure where I, I haven't woven it into my clinical practice completely because I, I don't understand at the higher levels. I mean, I understand the idea that maybe we've dismissed the shadow right when we get to our personality ideal, but the ideal idea of that self perfection coupled with the idea of like disidentifying with sort of the lower um parts, to me, um I don't know if that's actually possible, even at those higher levels, but that could certainly just be a product of, I know we talk about this in our group sometimes where people who don't understand the theory don't understand the theory sometimes because they can't grasp um, some parts of it. It doesn't like, it doesn't fit with their schema. Um, and I, so I wonder sometimes about that, if just these higher places, I can't see them without shadow because I can't comprehend the higher you does that make sense okay it does but like i think i've thought about this because this has totally come up during the group but and i feel like this is the kind of thing that i kept to myself probably but i think that it has to be a process of getting to a place where you recognize your shadow you have done that work you know like i feel very much like a part of my personal process of development has been learning to recognize my shadow, to see it when it's like arising in my life because something's happening, embracing these parts of myself and 
in having self-compassion, knowing that this is a part of me too, not rejecting it or pretending like it doesn't exist. But you're right that this is not something that was made explicit in the theory. And I think it's partly because we only have so much written work from him. If he could have written as much as somebody who hadn't had so much struggle and being displaced, you know, and, and just the circumstances of his life that were tragic in many ways, it impacted his ability to do the uninterrupted work that you want a scholar like that to be able to do, you know? And so I feel in some ways, like, we don't have as much English work as we deserve from him. There is a lot of Polish work that we haven't had a chance to even explore yet. Yes. But that means that those answers may be somewhere. Yes. And they may even be, you know, in one of the the chain in books or something. And I just haven't made this connection yet. But I agree with you that this is a very interesting thing to explore. And it's also interesting to explore the shadow of the theory itself and the people involved in it. <laughs> Yes, I yes, 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 I agree with you. And um, I hope it's there. And I hope I hope that um, it's unearthed and translated, because it just is so much of the human experience to have the shadow. And it's such a gold mine, right, to work with the shadow, because it'll bring us into alignment with ourselves and and that sort of, you know, higher, more highly developed self, because of the experience of working with the shadow. But I, and, I, and just coming back to your comment about the theory, I remember when I first was like getting in more into the larger circles, I was like, there's some shadow, you know, like any organized process, any systemic circle. And I am really curious about that. And I'm just wondering if there's anyone out there who like tracks that or, uh, you know, formally uh, or informally. I mean, I just get little snippets here and there, but... I find that really fascinating because there has been some disruption here and there and some disagreement. And sometimes I want, I'm not making that wrong or bad. I, I just wonder if that's the theory at work, right? The tension within the theory. It's a good question about who maybe has tracked this over time or who has given this some thought. I mean, it's, it's really interesting and there's, yeah, I mean, there's a whole history here that we came to, you know, later after other people had already been kind of entrenched in working with the theory. And so yeah. it's been an interesting part of the journey just to try and figure out these things to like, for me, as you know, I mean, I've done a lot of interviews asking people about Michael and his work and what he's like as a person, but that has also opened me up to fascinating conversations with people who have studied the theory for years, people who even worked with Dabrowski, like Dexter Amen, you know, and so it's been, I mean, gosh, every time I get to talk to Dexter, it's like a goldmine of fascinating stuff being opened up from the past. <laughs> but like, I remember being at a Congress and there was like, hey, we've got boxes of material in someone's garage. Like, what are we going to do with this? You know, there's like, it, like, because it's a living theory, you know, there, there, it, it, it's, there wasn't maybe a succession plan or maybe there was, but is, is that what's happening now? And what about like the, the new thinkers? Then I've heard that term Neo Dabrowski. Um, like, where does that fit? Does it fit? Is the tension in the theory itself and the circle of practitioners and scholars, is that tension moving the theory into a higher place? 
is is oh all gosh. right in the world. Oh, what, go ahead. You just like you just made me think that we're also dealing with this same problem of not facing the shadow or not resolving conflicts, maybe in a vertical way. Uh, this all of this also applies to the field of gifted education. Oh, I, I know it's like, yeah, yes. <laughs> like That's more like, broadly, you know, like there are whole fields that don't seem to have examined their own experiences of tension and how to resolve conflicts instead of recycling them for decades. Yes. I think about that a lot because, and this is what I've come up with. I think there's that acute level of perfectionism in the gifted field. And I think it somehow becomes more available to us when we're in, in conferences and we're all together. And because we are empathic, whether or not that's conscious or not. And I think we come together and there's just sort of this edginess uh, that can happen and there's certainly a couple of camps, like in my book, I talk a little about the confusion and just defining the term gifted. Right? There's there's not even really consensus around that, you know, achievement versus whole child, you know, as an example. So, yeah, Chris, I mean, we, we haven't found our way out of that. We haven't found that vertical solution. Wouldn't that be meaningful at conferences to have like drop in think tanks that like think about this and work on it? experientially totally totally isn't this sort of like what kate talked about when we had her speaking about disintegration in organizations where when new bits of information come in when new people come in they bring with them their perspectives and their values she was talking about in a business where the founders who have the original idea you know, the employees and the stakeholders that come in afterwards might have a different value and a different vision and a different set of needs and the the group has to figure out how to meet all those needs and the, the shifting values. So it can't just be what originally started. There has to be some sort of awareness with everybody that as the makeup of any group shifts, uh, even as the individuals within that group grow, that the dynamics the, the values and, you know, even the perceptions and that are all going to change. You know, we, we sort of say, say groups or, or companies or you know, uh, even a theory as like this solid, stable thing that's never going to shift, when in reality, the more that people work with it, the, the more people that come to it, it's inevitably going to change. I think we forget that sometimes. Yeah, yeah that's a great reminder, Emma. And, and it's a human theory, right? So there's just... There's just the, 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 the mess of that, you know, that sort of rounded mess of being human, you know, that's very earthbound. And then there's the part of us, right, that's, that's more lofty. And um, how do we find that middle ground together? And that's maybe why, you know, the shadow will never go away, because if we're continually got a growth mindset and we're always learning, it's a cycle of, of rediscovering and, and testing out new ground. Yes. Um, I have worked before. I had this one consulting project that was so meaningful for me when it, it was really hard to leave. And finally, um, it, it, after nine years, I was like, yep, I think I, I, I want to step out because uh, it would be more helpful to do that. Um, and it was it, it was really hard to do because it was such a fun place. It was like a living laboratory. And we did things like this. Um, it was an organization that served 
teenagers that were at risk for a variety of reasons. It was considered kind of a, a place where kids who were going to drop out or had dropped out could go and sort of reset their compass. And I helped the organization sort of put some things in motion to just sort of be able to have a good structure that could hold all that came with that to our school. And some of the things we did were very interesting and looked at the shadow. Like as staff, we looked at ourselves and we kind of called each other out. Like, for example, we talked about which of the kids, which of the students we identified with most <laughs> and which of the students we pushed away from, which is almost always an indication of our shadow, right? And then when we were in relationship that was breaking down in either of those directions, we had each other's back, so to speak. And we could say, well, remember, like this half, this is what I think when I, partly when I started to step back was one of the staff came to me, I was trying to um, help a teenager who was about to drop out from this program. And he was definitely somebody I identified with. And I said, well, I'm going to stay here and help him re-enroll. He was out in the parking lot. I'm like, well, I hope he's going to come back in and we're, we're going to, and they said, Catherine, remember, he is someone you identify with. Um, and uh, to the point where he was my light, you know, he reminded me so much of myself and I had to step back because that had to be his choice and his decision. And I couldn't project any of my stuff into it. So that kind of environment got, became so healthy in being able to see ourselves and one another. But still there was shadow because it's it's always there. You know, it's like it's like under the under the it's like a lump under the rug. Well, you never know when something is going to trigger your wounds and right? you're just not what am I trying to say? Like retaining an awareness of yourself and where you're coming from and checking your motivations all the time is exhausting. I mean, right. we can only do so much of it. Yes, yes, exactly. And then, right, to have, be in relationship with other people, you know, which this is something I learned from Michael and that beautiful monograph, you know, like, and this is like one of those embarrassing things that I like, I just learned, like, I think this summer, you know, last, I don't know, within the last 12 months, you know, that, the emotional piece is only in relationship, right? Like it's not like in isolation, even though that happens, but that's so tricky, right? Because who are we gonna find in the world who's going to give us honest, direct reflection on a regular basis, especially in a work circle, right? Um, hopefully we have that in our friends and family, but sometimes that's not the case. And then to find it at work or to find it in the greater field and to be able to, to, be able to say, excuse me, scholar, I understand where you're coming from, but have you thought about this and how this might be related to your own shadow? I'm not going to say that to someone I barely know at, you know, a gifted conference. I don't know how I would respond if somebody did that for me. I hope I'd embrace it, but I don't know if I would. Like historically with my positive disintegration group, I've, I've said to them, you know, for a long time, we kept that group small, like fewer than 20 people. And I would tell them, you have to tell me if I'm doing something that is, and that's basically what I was telling them. Like, if this is coming from my shadow and you see that, please tell me, call me out. But I have to say that I realized that I don't always have a clear awareness of how other people perceive me, you know, and other people may idealize me a little at this point because of what I do. And so I can't expect reasonably to ask people to do that because there's always at this point, some power differential. If this is my group, you know what I mean? And I'm running it. Like I have to remember that. And so 
I mean, of course, now I tell Emma that too. Like you have to tell me if I'm being an <laughs> asshole, Emma. I mean, and I mean it, but it's, it's not easy to, to hear things that you don't want to hear or to face the truth. I mean, these are difficult, they're difficult things under the best circumstances. So, yeah, yeah I agree. And I, I think that, um, right. When you're at, when you're the leader or the facilitator, we get some of that training, like in counseling school, you know, around like what that looks like, but it's, but it's, it's framed in the way of like sort of maintaining that post. Right. And you'll get challenges to that post, but you know, there's a phenomena that happens, right. When you're there, um, because people are projecting and, and it's not that they're wrong or bad to do this. We just as humans can sort of project up onto that person. And it's a, it's a vulnerable place to be. Um, if you're not getting that reflection and I think clinicians, you know, like, yeah, I mean, I, I, I still go to clinical supervision, you know, and I have got, you know, 20 plus years. I'm amazed when I get a phone call from a colleague who's, you know, trying to sort out some dilemma and they, I'm like, have you talked with your supervisor? And they don't have a supervisor. I guess I'm judging that, but, but this work, you have, like, you have to have that reflection. I mean, because of course, like my clinical training came from social work. It just was made extremely clear to me throughout my educational process, throughout my internships, like everything that I would always expect to have a supervisor as long as I was going to do any kind of clinical work. And so to be honest, I don't know if that's different in psychology and counseling, but I agree with you. I know a lot of people who are clinicians who don't have supervisors. Yeah, like they'll they'll get their license and then stop. And I, I mean, I, I guess I guess that's possible. I, I just know in my uh, lineage as a counselor, it's recommended that you have a supervisor, and I really took that to heart. You know, it's also recommended that you're in your own therapeutic process, certainly as a student, but as a as a right. practitioner as well. And it, it makes things, um, at least for me, it just it's it allows me to, to, to work at a range that um, I feel supported, I feel clear, if I become unclear, I have places to go that's evident or that shows up in what I can offer. But the shadow, I mean, like you have to have places where people are gonna level with you. <laughs> I think those are a couple of those places. It's interesting because I have never felt like I can do this alone at all. For me, the biggest issue was who will be able to guide me when it comes to the theory in clinical practice? And I remember talking with you when I was going to go back to working with clients about that. That was my biggest concern. But I've found that it's not the it's not the problem I expected because you're just working with people. It's not like the theory is coming into a session exactly, you know. And so it's interesting how that. It didn't become the problem that I expected it to be, but that's because I'm so in my head with the theory that I forgot that it wasn't going to, it's not like we're sitting there in a clinical, like in a session talking about theory. Right, right, right. You're templating it, templating it here and there, or maybe introducing something that you see that might be a matchup, right? I was overthinking that aspect of it. And yet, I mean, I know that it would be such a, it would be an incredible blessing to have like some kind of supervision group where everybody was 
Dabrowski informed in that group. Yeah. That would be cool. Yeah. It would be yeah. a little bit like our study group, but all clinical people. Oh, Chris, let's, uh, yes, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe by the I end know. of this year. Yeah, it'd be fantastic because, you know, the practitioners, that researcher practitioner model, right? I just, it's just really helpful to kind of be holding both, both for those things to be holding hands with one another and theory and practice. And Elizabeth Micah comes to mind. I was thinking about, um, you know, she came, when she came to our study group and we read her thoughts on sort of clinical application. I was just looking at that this morning, actually, because I was just getting ready for this call and just, I knew we were going to talk about the group a little bit, like where it was most helpful and, you know, just reminding, getting the reminder that like, like the simple, but not simple idea that if the tension isn't there, children will create it. And like from a family systems model, that makes sense to me, right? They're trying to sort of raise the flag or, or move the family past a pattern that's no longer serving them. But from a Dabrowski lens, there's this extra piece that's so that makes so much sense to me is if you're trying to develop and there's not enough tension, you're going to create that for yourself. And then what do we do with that? It's funny because we keep going back to this idea of tension and how important it is. I mean, not just you know studying the theory in a group to have tension of different ideas and not all be thinking the same and in organizations and that, that, you know, different individuals are going to come in and then there's going to be tension because we're all sort of not only coming from our own perspective, but we've also got that tension within ourselves with the shadow. But we know that Dabrowski said that you can't have development without tension because, as you said, Chris, like you always say, call you out when you're being an asshole, which I must say rarely happens. But without that sort of lens of we have to be able to find fault, you know, we have to see something wrong to be able to improve on that and to be able to find new solutions because you're coming from my perspective and what I do with a job, I wouldn't actually have a job in solving problems and improving stuff if there weren't problems in the first place. And for a narcissist, they don't see anything wrong with themselves. They think they're absolutely perfect. So what is there to to fix right where is there to go like you know they think they're already perfect they're never going to grow so it just seems to me that at whatever level you approach this theory whether it's from a, a personal perspective or from a study perspective or from a community perspective the appreciation of that tension and the appreciation of being able to call it out and dis you know disagree with each other with a level of safety you know, an acknowledgement of that shadow that it's always going to be there, but it serves a purpose to grow, seems to be overarching everything. Emma, well said. I, I, I think about, you know, I used to work in human resources management before I went back to school to become a counselor. And as a result, I do sometimes when I help organizations, I help them with some of their leadership development and some of their hiring practices. And there is a way organizationally to put together a really solid interview process. So people coming in understand what's what what the company's about, but also have an opportunity to talk through some of this, what you just described, like, you know, we believe in discussing things and being direct with one another and figuring things out together, even if it feels painful or difficult to bring things to light. You know, have you worked in that kind of environment before? What was it like for you? 
what would, what do you imagine, you know, how could this fit for you? And then once that person sort of onboarded, to be able to come back to them and say, remember, we talked, we talked about this, <laughs> um, bring this forward versus creating like triangles, you know, and alignments here and there and people complaining. It's, it's trying to get everybody sort of pointed in the same direction, at least in a sort of process orientation. Right. So there are remedies and there are ways like the organization you described earlier that, you know, lots of new people are coming in and like bringing things. And what do you do? Yeah, absolutely. You need to have fresh eyes. You need to have new people coming in. But to put a structure in place that allows kind of like I was talking about clinical supervision, by having that structure in place for myself, I have the freedom in my practice to, um, or in an organization by having that structure in place, at least process structure, we have the freedom then to be honest with each other and to be direct with each other. But it's not easy to achieve that. It, it sometimes takes a total reset and, and often it takes a total breakdown uh, before an organization's ready to take a look and build that back up and start to create a vertical. Complaints are an opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> That's the customer service motto. Complaints, you shouldn't view them as a bad thing. You should view them as an opportunity to resolve a problem because it means someone has had the courage to speak up about what's going wrong. I yeah. love that. And, <laughs> I love yeah. that. And, and I think the same is true in like family counseling, you know, like something breaks down. It's an opportunity. There's something trying to emerge in the family. There's something trying to develop in the family. Ooh, I can tie, yeah. I want to tie this to your book if that's okay. Sure. Um, like what you just said is evident in your book, Raising Gifted Children. When I read it, and I think that I speak for other parents, I'm sure that it's hard when you're reading books about parenting gifted children, especially if your kid because by the time you're reading that book, probably you're not dealing with a small child, maybe, right? Like by the time I read your book, my son was like 14, maybe, you know? And so I was like, well, shit. <laughs> I mean, here are all these things I've screwed up and I wish that I could go back in time and do the things that would have served him better. And it's really hard when you're a parent and you're reading books about parenting gifted kids because you see the things that you could have done. And I just, and I have to be honest that part of what I'm saying here is um, informed by the fact that I have this group that I co-admin with um, four other women on Facebook. We have like more than 11,000 people in this group. And so I've had over the course of a few, like more than four years now, like watching what people say. And I, I see so regularly how difficult it is for parents to face the shadow in this way, because you have these parents of gifted kids who maybe were very high achieving. Well, now they have a kid who they know is profoundly gifted, who isn't achieving. They don't care about school. And the inner work that you have to do to parent this kind of kid well is enormous really yeah. you know and it's a it's a long process but it's really tough because and so yeah like 
but you have to see these things as opportunities. You can't read in a book and say, oh my gosh, like I wish I had done that differently and shut down. You have to say, okay, well, my child is still here. <laughs> like we still have a relationship. This is an opportunity for me to do better from now on, you know, and to have some grace with yourself. But I just want to say that I loved your book. I know how much, because we're friends, how much you value children as individuals, you know, and have a deep respect for them. And that comes through really clearly in the book. And so I loved it because I thought you were talking about raising gifted kids from your perspective, which is Dabrowski informed, you know, which is informed by your work with these people who are like legends, like Linda and Patty and, you know, and so it's wonderful. But I just wanted to say that it's tough. Um, Chris, thank you for those kind words. And I, yeah, I mean, I just think it is so hard. I, you know, I bow to parents. It's such hard work. And, you know, I do a pretty thorough intake process when families come, come to me and want to uh, explore working together. And we do, I do an hour and a half long intake call with families, with parents. Uh, it's the only time I exclude children from the process because I want parents to have the freedom to, to answer the questions I need to ask them about their family tree histories and their family dynamics um, and their own journeys. But by the end of that call, kind of like the, the interview process I was sharing with you earlier, if it does feel like a good work, uh, match to work together, we're all pointed in the same direction, which is this is not just about your child needing to change. This is about something that's going on within the family system that the child is pointing out or calling attention to. And if we all work together, we can move this through and almost always, which I just love about my work, is the families who call me, their children are telling them, I want to talk to someone. So we are in a place where the child's ready to go. The parents are like, okay, we're willing to look in our own inner world. Oftentimes they already are, but sometimes they're just starting. And we point our compass together and the work just flies. I mean, it just moves it, and, and it's, a, you know, it's effective. But that's a difficult conversation to have. But I learned as an intern that during an intake process, people are more able to just answer all the questions, even the most difficult ones. And so we start off on that foot. It's very kind and compassionate, but it's it's intense. And then we st then we bring the child in and go from there. And then the child is always in the loop um, in, in, as in, in as much as possible around um, even the parents' own work they're doing, uh, which is like related to parenting. Kids know like, you know, I'm gonna meet with your mom and dad. They wanna talk about parenting. I'll come back to you and, you know, let you know what we talked about. So it, it's just, everyone is working together. Well, that makes perfect sense though, that you all wanna be pointing in the same direction and that the work goes well then. It's interesting to me because like when I was a kid, I wanted to go to a therapist and, there was so much resistance from like my parents and my family. Well, but I mean, of course there was, you know, my father was an alcoholic and, you know, there were family dynamics that were in the dark, but there I was like wanting to tell people about these things, you know, and even like, I remember in high school, 
talking to a reporter and like calling my father and grandfather alcoholics, which then <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. It's not really funny, but then it ended up in the paper. Right. And so my grandfather oh. like opens the paper and reads this and they didn't, I mean, they didn't use my last name, but it was clearly me. <laughs> and so like, but I, it's so, it's funny because you don't realize when you're a teenager that this dynamic is happening and that you're a part of this system of your family and that this is your place in it and you're doing this. And, you know, all you know is like the pain of what you're living in, in that moment. And all your grandparents know when they read the paper and you're calling them out in that way, it's like, it's brutal, but it brings progress. Exactly. And it, and children always bring to us, whether we're your, you know, we're, whether we are their parent or counselor or teacher, they're always bringing to us what needs to take, what we need to take a look at. Always, 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 always. And um, I know it's hard to talk in language like that, like the word always, but children just bring it to us. And, you know, parents, and I say this to parents, like it's this, if, if you're not willing or ready to look at this, that's okay. You know, it just will go down to the next generation if your children decide to have children. And then they'll have to look at it. And that's okay. I mean, that's the human journey. But you have an opportunity, you know, coming back to Emma, what you just said about opportunity, like there's an opportunity um, to take a look at what's happening and for everyone to, um, to grow, you know, individually, inwardly, and collectively as a family system. It's really beautiful. And, and oftentimes, right, that goes, that runs back up to the ancestors as well. There's a, there's a ripple effect in both directions, but it's not easy. It's not easy. I know I'm here shaking my head as if listeners can see me doing that. <laughs> yeah, so. me too. Well, that concludes our first episode of this two-part conversation. Many thanks to Chris and to Catherine for joining us and also to you, dear listeners, for joining us as well. Continue your path to authenticity through the links in the show notes. Subscribe to our Substack newsletter for stacks of cool things delivered straight to your inbox. Explore the Dabrowski Centre, email us, or join us on social media. And don't forget to show your love by liking, subscribing, grabbing some positive disintegration merch, or leaving us a rating or review on your podcast platform. 